Seriously. Um, I think it's 11. Close enough. So let's pray. The Lord be with you. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Um, can you all hear me okay? I can't project as much as I usually do. Um, usually pretty much of a loud mouth, but um, my lungs are still recovering. Well, not really my lungs, it's the bottom of my throat. So I have to speak fairly softly. So fortunately, the sound system is working right. Well, we're still looking at the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs. This is part two, so we'll be looking at chapters five through nine. And, and it's, a, it's a quick overview, and I'll be reading excerpts. Did everybody get a copy of this week's lesson? Anybody need a copy for your notebook? Um, I kind of apologize for that. If I was really organized, it would all be done and the notebooks would actually be finished. Um, anyway, this is a reminder of the outline. And again, outlines, except maybe of Paul's letters. Paul almost seems to be working from an outline in his head, but most outlines of biblical books are, are theoretical. Some are better than others. And I mentioned this was suggested by Dr. Dwayne Garrett, and I think it's the best one. So the... the these nine chapters are sort of like the preamble to wisdom. Uh, it's doing more than this, but it's kind of saying, here's why you should read through these Proverbs of Solomon and these other wise men too. So it's exhortations, primarily uh, organized around exhortations from father to sons. Um, collection of discourses or essays. There are individual proverbs in there, but it's, it's usually longer discourses. Um, uh, these help prepare the reader, us, and the implied, the actual reader, us, and the implied reader, the sons uh, and young men of Israel, for encountering the collection of proverbs in chapter 10 and 29 and the reflections of chapter 30 and 31. And so right now we're going to turn to the fifth exhortation of the father to his sons. We already have done the first four. And the father, some of them take it to be Solomon talking his sons. I think actually the way that it is written, it's, it's, it's an ideal father in a literary sense and talking to uh, literary sons. So he warns his son again, and he'll do it again, um, of the dangers of illicit sex outside the bonds of marriage. Um, so it, it's not that uh, the problems of illicit sex just originated with the sexual revolution of Western culture, although it seems to have 
um, gotten a lot worse. So the book of Proverbs stresses emphatically the importance of marital and family fidelity. And we'll actually focus on that in one of the topical studies. Fidelity in general to individuals, to family, and to one's spouse. Um, let me look uh, or, or read uh, an excerpt from chapter 5. Uh, if, again, you have your Bible on, a, on your phone or in print, you can go ahead and follow along and, and maybe get more context because I only have time to read a few excerpts. So he says, My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen well to my words of insight that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge, for the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and the lips of an adulterer, a male, also drip honey. But in the end she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. And that, that trope, that metaphor, her feet go down to death, her steps lead straight to the grave, will also be repeated. She gives no thought to the way of life, her, to the way of life, her paths are crooked, but she knows it not. Uh, he will warn his sons again in chapter 6 and yet again in chapter 7. Um, it's, it's been said by a lot of people, even some Christians, that Christians get too obsessed with sexual morality. Yeah, no. Um, there may be some ways in which we focus on certain particulars within that too much, but um, I mean, if I thought real hard, I could probably think of something, but not sure that anything has the potential for damaging family, relationships, and the structure of society as a whole as not appropriately managing. I'm not sure that's the right word either. It sounds so uh, bloodless and cool, but managing our sexual desire, and our sexuality. Um, and, of course, we're all aware of this from the culture around us. Um, the other woman is not only sexually seductive, and again, as I said, I think it's appropriate to make the changes in our minds. The other man also is not... And, and that seems to be more of a metaphor in today's society. It's, it's the seductive male often. Seductive woman is there too. Um, what was the name of that movie with Michael Douglas and Glenn Close? Uh, Fatal Attraction, yes. Dead Rabbits. Anyway, the other woman is not only sexually seductive but flatters the man's ego with honeyed words. The son is warned of the consequences, the regret and the ruin of one's life, of yielding to illicit sexual desire and seduction. And while the focus is on uh, adultery, of breaking uh, the bonds of marriage. Uh, I think it's appropriate, and I think implied by Scripture, that it is, this implies uh, any kind of uh, sexual promiscuity or anything outside the bonds of faithful marriage. Um, verses 15 through 19 elevate this moral counsel to figurative and poetic heights. Let me... Read 15 through 19. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, 
Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Uh, and certainly that last part is, is almost it's beginning to remind us of the Song of Solomon, which we'll look at, I think, just, just before Advent um, in the fall. The water of verses 15 through 16 is sexual affection and delight. So it's, it's a very expressive metaphor. Um, the cistern uh, is that of the wife, the springs of the husband. And it's basically saying these waters need to be confined to the home, to the marriage. Uh, and I think, I, think we, uh, I think we understand we live in a culture where there's water, water everywhere, uh, flowing through the streets, dripping from the ceiling, uh, pouring out where it doesn't belong. Um, verses 18 and 19 are a prayer expressed in intimate poetry for the young man to only find sexual fulfillment in a loving wife. Um, the first half of chapter 6 is an interlude. Um, it, it makes some sense, although it does seem to be a break in the, in the action there. Um, but when taken as a whole, it fits into the context. Uh, it highlights the traits of three kinds of men who character and choices express negative life outcomes that can be avoided. That's uh, the unity in the context. Of course, being adulterer, one way to ruin your life, but so is being uh, financially foolish, lazy, or scoundrel or troublemaker. Um, the financially foolish man is one who fails to consider the possible disastrous consequences of his monetary decisions. The text focuses on putting up security for a neighbor's financial obligations. Uh, so in chapter 6, 1 through 3, My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you have struck hands and pledged for another, if you have been trapped by what you said, ensnared by the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, to free yourself since you have fallen into your neighbor's hands. Go and humble yourself, press your plea with your neighbor. Uh, the contemporary equivalent of that is co-signing for a loan, um, particularly a large one, or perhaps um, becoming uh, uh, the supporter of a, a business of a friend with your money uh, when perhaps the outcomes are a bit iffy. Um, co-signing for loans is a dangerous thing. I've, we've done it once for our daughter, and under the circumstances, if she had defaulted, which she did not, uh, we, we could have just paid the whole thing off. Um, so it wasn't an obligation that would have been disastrous, so I couldn't meet it. But um, uh, this is why, oh, I'm, I'm drifting a little here, but the, the idea of being uh, financially wise uh, and careful is something that really ought to be taught to uh, kids as soon as they can understand the value of money. I'm not sure when the age of financial accountability is, but probably right after moral accountability. Um, so in other words, uh, the father counsels the son, get yourself extricated immediately, if not sooner, from your rash financial pledge. Don't uh, I think it's a wise thing, a principle, you know, don't 
gamble business-wise or loan-wise with money that you cannot afford to lose. We all know the possible hazards of co-signing for loans. Um, there is, of course, more to financial foolishness than this, and this isn't a class in finances, but so, so I won't do that. Uh, but the idea of dealing with wealth, wealth wisely uh, is an important emphasis in Proverbs, and that's another subject we'll take up in one of our topical studies. The character of the lazy man is highlighted by one of the more well-known Proverbs uh, metaphors in Proverbs in chapter 6, 6 through 8. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. Now this is obviously, it's an authorial implication, but obviously from Solomon, who said not only to have studied the wise men of the east and of Egypt, but to have studied nature carefully and even cataloged species and understood ecosystems in contemporary language. The lazy man is his own worst enemy and invites poverty by his lack of initiative. Um, I don't quite understand laziness. It's not that I very early read this and applied it to my head. I've read it since and applied it. But um, it's so obvious that if you don't take some initiative, you're going to suffer for it. Now, having said that, um, when you get older, and, and those of us of a certain age will understand this, napping becomes something you actually really enjoy. But that's different from laziness. Uh, I'm going to interject at this point and note that the book of Proverbs is well aware that poverty is not always the fault of the poor. For example, in Proverbs 13:23, we read that a poor man's field may produce abundant food, but injustice sweeps it away. Um, a lot of poverty is caused by laziness and lack of initiative, but a lot of poverty is not. Um, and we'll deal with that too, uh, the importance of understanding wealth and poverty in yet another one of our topical studies. Scoundrels and villains. Scoundrels. Um, the, the idea of the lovable scoundrel is a common Hollywood trope in movies. Uh, but they're not really... You know, in, in Hollywood, they always have a heart of gold. Um, although you wouldn't know it. Um, but real scoundrels and villains are troublemakers who seem to dislike in disrupting the shalom of whatever community they might be a part of and able to influence. So in 6, 12 through 15, a scoundrel and a villain who goes about with a corrupt mouth, who winks with his eye, signals with his feet, and motions with his fingers. These are all... Uh, expressions of deceit and plotting. Who plots evil with deceit in his art, he always stirs up dissension. Therefore, disaster will overtake him in an instant. He will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. Um, the scoundrels and villains are men and women who will aggrandize and benefit themselves at the expense 
of others and at the expense of the shalom of their community. Uh, one obvious and egregious example of this is uh, the, the common practice now in, in bigger cities, I haven't heard it happening in Louisville enough, the so-called smash and grab robberies where a group of typically young men, uh, racially we don't actually know because they're usually always masked, uh, will go into a high-end store um, and steal uh, the, the wares that they're selling and, and disrupt the community, uh, increase the turmoil, and certainly decrease shalom. Uh, but as always the case, uh, all, evil always overextends itself, and these people often bring about their own downfall, not as often as we might hope or as quickly. Uh, the sword of the Lord's justice doesn't fall as soon as we would like, but often it does. Um, in the sixth and seventh exhortations, the father pleads with his sons to heed the moral teachings he has received and make wisdom his constant companion. He then again warns his son of the dangers of the immoral woman. And again, I'm going to say that I think uh, pointing out that there are immoral men that we could warn our daughters about is appropriate. The immoral woman, the prostitute, and especially the adulteress. Lusting for another man's wife is playing with fire, inviting shame and eating violence, we read in this section. Chapter 7 repeats the exhortation to desire wisdom rather than illicit sex. Um, there is a sense in which wisdom can be enticing and can be delightsome just like the promise of illicit sex. It isn't actually delightsome. Talk about that more in just a minute. Uh, the father then shares a cautionary tale about a foolish young man who fell for the wiles of a seductive, um, of a seductive adulteress. Um, so in verse 7, I'm just going to read the beginning of this. Uh, I saw among the simple, I noticed the young men... Among the young men, a youth who lacked judgment. A youth who lacked judgment. Well, that does not narrow it down much, doesn't it? Um, uh, I have met uh, teenagers who are wise beyond their years, but they stand out as uh, outliers and exceptions. Uh, literally, at least I have read so. Um, adolescents up to a certain point haven't actually finished fully forming uh, their prefrontal lobes, which is supposedly the uh, center of logic and reason which helps them overcome the urges of their emotions. Uh, that would be a study worth uh, engaging in. But a youth who lacks judgment is, is a very common thing. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house at twilight as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. Yeah, just an uh, apt uh, literary expression about how the cover of darkness uh, gives us the courage, if that's what you call it one time, because we think our actions will be hidden. So the woman comes out, entices him, um, 
and leads him into thinking uh, uh, that this is something that will be delightsome and fulfilling. The story ends, however, in 727 by revealing that the true end to the wayward woman's past does not end in delight. We read, her house is a highway to the grave. That, that would be a great name for a movie about adultery. Uh, leading down into chambers of death. Um, it is fascinating, in a Spockian but tragic sort of way, fascinating. That the story, this, this story has been played out, Spockian, having to do with Mr. Spock on Star Trek. It has been played out throughout history and continues in our time. It's, it's expanded. Uh, and men and women continue to believe that they can write their own version of this story, but with a happy ending. Uh, and this is a fond and romanticized delusion that adultery ever ends in true happiness. Uh, an example from popular culture was the book and movie The Bridges of Madison County. Um, I, uh, I admit to never actually having read the book or seen the movie, but you know, at the time, uh, it was uh, celebrated and denigrated, depending on which side of it, because it, it romanticizes adultery. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes, yes, I looked it up, gave the movie a 90% critics rating. That's astonishing. Audiences were not that far behind at 87%. And, and this is the blurb about this movie that's just gushingly approving. It is a moving story about a photographer on assignment to shoot the historic bridges of Madison County. He meets a housewife whose husband and children are away on a trip. They're, they're visiting the state fair. And the film traces a brief affair that is never sorted, but instead one of two soulmates who have met too late. Of course, this is fiction. And again, it's a romanticized delusion. So what, what actually happened or would have happened is nothing, of course, like what Robert Waller, the, the uh, author of the book, and he tried this again on a couple occasions, but he was never quite successful again. Um, that is a fairly old example, I think 95 or something like that. Um, Adultery is not always so romanticized in popular culture. Sometimes the consequences of it are highlighted. But sexual promiscuity, and, and, and it's like, I feel like I'm saying, well, we all know water is wet. But sexual promiscuity and even infidelity are depicted as just part of the cultural landscape. They're no big deal. Oh, yes, adult consenting uh, doesn't even have to be men and women. It can be men and men, women and women. Um, uh, it's no real cause for concern or warning. But it, again, the warning here from Scripture is this damages the family. And again, this is, this is nothing new. And you almost feel like when you say this, and you say it over and over again, you are speaking uh, words into the wind. But that doesn't change the fact that it's true, and this is the reality. A great many, and I won't, oh, I could, but I, I'll stop myself a great many problems of um, uh, trying to think of the non-pejorative term, but you know, out of wedlock children, I forget what the percentages now are, but um, 
Only about half the children in this country are born to married couples. Uh, it may even be worse than that. Um, the absenteeism of fathers in certain segments of American culture is well known. The, the damage and, and the turmoil caused to families is one of the prior, uh, one of the primary causes of, of social discord uh, and, and problems and violence in this country. Uh, throwing money at it won't solve it. Um, what will solve it? Well, fortunately, that's not what I'm talking about today. But obviously, a revival of concern for morality in the traditional family. Um, very long. Uh, in Wisdom's second call, Wisdom is personified as Lady Wisdom. Um, let me read the opening of chapter 8. Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights along the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gates leading into the city, at the entrances, she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. You who are, and, and I admit, I should have looked this up in the Hebrew. There are two words in Hebrew that are translated men. One means a male. One means it's like the generic anthropos in Greek. Uh, it's often translated man, but it really just means a human person. So I'm not sure it, if it means uh, gendered male here or an actual just human being. But I would say it applies to all human beings. To you, O oh human beings, I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, gain understanding. So she calls out openly and publicly, uh, revealing and indicating that wisdom, it's, it's not a secret esoteric thing. It's not only for the elites. As a matter of fact, elites has become a bad word, at least in American politics. Uh, there are social um, reasons for that, but I won't go on to. But we, we have, uh, unfortunately, become almost trained to distrust people who come have called themselves or called experts. So wisdom is not just for the experts, it's for anybody willing to listen. Wisdom proclaims her truth and goodness and extols her great value. Uh, in 10 and 11, choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Finally, wisdom pronounces a blessing on the... Well, I skipped a part. Wisdom enables rulers to rule justly uh, in verses 15 and 16. By me, kings reign and rulers make laws that are just. By me, princes govern, and all nobles who rule on earth. And would that the current uh, rulers and governments of the earth would heed that. Finally, wisdom pronounces a blessing. Wisdom proclaims her role in God's work of creation, a subject we'll look at more closely in just a moment. And finally, wisdom pronounces a blessing on those who listen to her 
and decries those who reject her. In 34 and 36, last verses of chapter 8, Blessed is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorways, Whoever finds me finds life and receives favor from the Lord. But whoever fails to find me harms himself. All who hate me love death. I could again digress digress greatly at what seems to be the embrace of a culture of death in this country. Uh, Everything from abortion uh, to uh, the, the denial of our mortality. Uh, talks about our, our willingness to almost take death as normal and something not only to be I- ignored or embraced. Uh, we do live in a culture of death because we live in a culture of unwisdom. Um, within this chapter, uh, there is a focus on wisdom or some relation to creation. Uh, Specifically, verses 22 through 31 have been called a hymn to wisdom, extolling uh, wisdom's role in the Lord's creation of the world. And let me go ahead and this will be the longest excerpt I read. In verses 22 through 31, the Lord brought me forth, wisdom, as the first of his works before his deeds of old. Uh, The term brought me forth can be either created or begotten. So brought forth is a really good translational compromise there, I think. Um, I was appointed from eternity. That's a little misleading because the Hebrew actually means from the most remote time. And sometimes it does not mean what we think of as, as, as eternity. And I'm not sure it does here. So I was appointed from the most remote time, from the beginning before the world began, when there were no oceans, I was given birth, when there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth, before he made the earth or its fields or any of the dust of the world. I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizons on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep. When he gave the sea its boundaries so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was the craftsman at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. So wisdom pre-exists God's creation of the world. In one sense, it's the blueprint, and in another sense, it's uh, the construction supervisor with God as the architect. Uh, it was created, brought forth, or begotten by God before anything else. As Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke, if you know your Old Testament scholars, he's a very well-respected, uh, top-tier Old Testament scholar. And I say that because in a few moments I'm going to disagree with him, and who am I to disagree with the top-tier Old Testament scholar? Uh, he may be right. Um, 
But in this case, he is definitely right. Wisdom comes from God's essential being. Um, uh, and there, there's a song, in, Immortal, Invisible, God, Only Wise. In a sense, wisdom is simply part of who God is, and he instills his creation with it. This does not mean that wisdom is depicted as a hypostasis. This is a Greek term that's best explained by saying in the, in the uh, creedal understanding of the Trinity, uh, the Trinity is a, is a unity of three hypostases, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, a standing there. In Latin, it's three persons, one being or one reality, three persons, three hypostases. If that's confusing, I'm sorry, but we can't digress into the Trinity. We'll be here for the next year or so if I do that. Um, but wisdom is not depicted as a hypostasis or incarnation of an attribute of God. Now, fortunately, that interpretation is not as common as it used to be. And we'll talk more about that in the next section. Rather, Lady Wisdom personifies an attribute of creation as Dwayne Garrett notes. And I would say that, that this is an analogy, but um, the physical world is built on a structure of, of what can be called mathematical relations and natural laws. They express the way that the world is put together in, in a orderly and rational fashion that exemplifies and expresses the orderliness and rationality of God. The world is beautiful, too, with expresses the beauty of God. So the, the wisdom is, is like the understructure of creation, both in the physical and in the moral and in the spiritual realms. Wisdom is the inherent order, structure, and purpose that God has built into his creation. Since God, by wisdom, created cosmic order, the world and mankind, as noted in 319, only by wisdom also can civil order be righteous and just. This is why there's a lot of talk about uh, CRT, critical race theory, which is an offshoot of what's called critical theory, which is a form of cultural Marxism. The, the problem with Marxism, well, there are lots of problems with Marxism, but it doesn't actually deal with reality the way it is. One thing, it is totally ignores the fact that we live in a fallen world. It is atheistic. It, it almost by definition can't be wise, since there is no fear of the Lord. And it will never work. Um, it's not that, you know, it hasn't been tried adequately. It's just been tried and failed every time. Um, and there are other systems, not just Marxism, that, that fail to actually uh, try and create their, their ideology uh, without reference to the actual world. It's an ideal world of human delusion. So... The attempt to guide, govern, rule, or regulate contrary to the way God has made man and made the world is delusional and ultimately doomed to failure. And if I were to list examples, that would be the end of the lesson. But I won't. So, another related topic uh, in this section, in chapter 8, 
uh, is the relation of Christ to wisdom. A very hot topic. Um, I'm not sure about uh, commentaries at the popular pastoral level, but every academic commentary you pick up on Proverbs is going to discuss this, and they'll come to different conclusions. Um, most of them moderate to conservative now. There are a few uh, tendentious uh, that will you know, interpret uh, wisdom as the goddess Sophia and try and reinterpret all of Christian theology uh, in those terms, but, but that's rather extreme. On the other hand, there are some that are not so extreme, but they're still wrong. Um, so what is the relationship of Christ to wisdom as it's personified in chapter 8, particularly verses 21 through 31? Early church fathers and patristic interpretation equated Christ with wisdom as described in chapter 8. Not from exegesis. They started, unfortunately, with their theological conclusions and applied them to chapter 8. Uh, this persisted through the Middle Ages, somewhat into the Reformation. I think Luther subscribed to this idea, and it is occasionally seen today at a popular heterodox level. Heterodox is like, you know, minor league uh, heresy. Um, that's the best way to think of it right now. It's, it's people who have good intentions, but they're still wrong. Uh, there is, however, no solid basis for this identification. Uh, often, 1 Corinthians, Paul's uh, letter to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, 18-30, and Colossians 2, uh, 2-3 are cited as support. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 23-24, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greek, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Well, that's certainly verbally related. Uh, and so people will jump right from that to theological conclusions. But I'll say why that's a mistake in a minute. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. However, neither of these passages does Paul reference or allude to Proverbs 8. There, there's no connection whatsoever except the use of the verbal, the use of wisdom. There's a verbal connection. And this is a very common way to make bad biblical interpretations. So Paul doesn't reference or allude to Proverbs 8 in any way. Uh, and in 1 Corinthians, he is extolling God's way of salvation by the cross of Christ as true wisdom, when, of course, the world thinks of it as ignominious defeat. You, you were crucified on a cross. You know, you're, that's, that's the end of you and the end of your uh, program. And obviously, this is foolishness. But of course, the resurrection changed all that. So he is extolling God's way of salvation by the cross of Christ's true wisdom, whatever human rationality or tradition may say about it. He is, he is not saying... That, that in Proverbs 8, this is, in fact, a hypothesis or a pre-incarnation incarnation, if that's a thing, of wisdom, uh, Christ of Christ. In Colossians, Paul is compending knowledge of Christ as true wisdom in contrast to fine-sounding but deceitful arguments. Wisdom personified is also not a hypostasis, 
or pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ as the Logos, the Word of God that uh, the Apostle John describes in the first chapter of his gospel. In the beginning was the Logos, the Word, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. Paul never uses the Greek term for wisdom, which is Sophia, to refer to Christ or explain what the Logos means anywhere. Um, I don't know if the word actually occurs in the gospel, but it never occurs in connection to explaining who Christ or what the Logos is. According to the, as I've already noted, uh, very well-known and respected Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke, uh, Lady Wisdom functions as a type of Jesus Christ. And like I say, who am I to argue with that? A type is a person, sometimes an object, that is a prophetic shadowing, foreshadowing of Christ in the Old Testament, with Christ being the antitype. So the types in the Old Testament, Christ the antitype is in the New Testament. Christ as the antitype in some way resembles but is superior to the type. Uh, this role is clearly and explicitly established for examples like King David. We all know that one. Uh, the ancient priest Melchizedek, you may have heard that one. You know, I've declared forever you are priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Moses, Adam, Jonah, and the high priest for the tabernacle and, and temple. The, the New Testament confirms that these are types of Christ. Um, there are some that can be strongly inferred. The New Testament might not explicitly say they refer to Christ, but there's strong reason to believe they do. Uh, such as Elijah and Solomon. There are even objects that can be seen as types, including the Passover lamb, again, quite obvious, the bronze serpent, which Christ confirms that one, that Moses lifted up in the wilderness, and the tabernacle itself is representative of God's salvation in Christ. Um, nowhere in the New Testament is Lady Wisdom or Proverbs 8 interpreted explicitly as a reference, a prophecy, or a type of Christ. So whether Lady Wisdom is a type or not is an inference. Is it a good inference? I don't think so. On the other hand, Bruce Waltke does think so. So in this case, I will defer to Dr. Waltke's conclusion. Like I say, I mean, that is his area, and he is an extremely well-respected uh, Old Testament scholar. I, on the other hand, am a totally unknown uh, theology student. Uh, but I do disagree. I don't really think Proverbs 8 functions as the type, but I will admit I could be wrong. So if, if you want to think that, that, that it is, then, then Bruce Walk, he says that's okay. In any case, in any case, since Christ is God incarnate, we can all agree on that, and the fear of the Lord is the first principle of wisdom. The fear of the Lord here is the fear of Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, uh, whom Christ did identify with. Very, verily, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am, referring not simply to his preexistence, but to his identification with the I am who revealed himself to Moses. So since that's the case, Seeking wisdom ultimately means seeking and obeying Christ. Um, and I'm convinced that's one avenue to conversion. People who the spirit moves, the God moves, to 
want to seek to actually discover what reality is, to find what wisdom is, uh, and act accordingly, will ultimately be led to Christ. Um, let me wrap this up. I got one minute. Um, the invitations of Lady Wisdom and Folly. The final appeal of Lady Wisdom is counterposed with the seductive indication of Madame Folly, the personification of foolishness. So Lady Wisdom says, Wisdom, it said of her, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her maids. She calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come in here, she says to those who lack judgment. Come, eat my food and drink the wine. And I have mixed, drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and you will live. Walk in the way of understanding. Um, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge and understanding of the Holy One is and knowledge the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding for through me wisdom says your days will be many and years will be added to your life um, lady uh, madam folly says the woman said of her the woman folly is loud she is undisciplined and without knowledge she sits at the door of her house on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way, let all who are simple come in here. She says to those who lack judgment, stolen water is sweet, food eaten in secret is delicious, but little do they know that the dead are there, that her graves are in the depths, that her guests are in the depths of the grave. So Lady Wisdom has diligently built her house and carefully prepared a sumptuous banquet for those who accept her invitation. Madame Folly, on the other hand, simply sits by her door, brazenly luring the, the gullible to partake of illicit pleasures and ill-gotten gain. The stolen water and food eaten in secret are again metaphors for illicit sexual pleasures which Madame Folly assures us is delightful and fulfilling. Wisdom announces the reward of her invitation. Life, while Folly ignores the consequences of hers, death. So Folly's invitation is repeated ad infinitum and ad nauseum in many of popular culture's offerings in television, movies, media, and music. And I won't offer any examples at this point, but I think you can fill in the blanks yourself. And I think our response doesn't need to be to just make better songs, YouTube and TikTok videos, or faith-based movies. We do not need to try and outblitz popular culture. I don't think we'll succeed in that. We need to be living examples of wisdom and the fear of the Lord. Now that is our time. Uh, thank you very much. If you have any questions, I'll be here cleaning up and, and I'll be happy to answer them on an individual basis.